are, as a church, in the season of Advent, uh, which in Latin actually means we're waiting for the coming. It's the four weeks, uh, four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day, designed to prepare our hearts, our minds, our souls for the coming of Jesus. Spoiler alert, he already came. Like, why does the church do this? Like, why do we do something to remember the birth of Jesus in a way that's like already happened in the past? Well, we take time to remember the birth of Jesus, the way that people of God have been waiting, had been waiting for centuries, waiting and waiting and waiting for the birth of the Messiah, the Savior. Uh, There was just a a ton of, of, uh, uh, I don't know, just constant waiting, looking, waiting. And we want to kind of enter into that because realizing and appreciating that we are a people who's waiting, not for his first coming, but for him to come again. You know, the resurrection, he ascends to heaven. We're waiting for him to return. As we remember the birth of Jesus, as we reflect on this, we're also studying through the book of Exodus. We're looking at the way that God has always worked with his people, and we're looking at how he works with our lives. I want to reflect a little bit on how he worked with Mary and Joseph, how he worked with Israel, and I want to apply all of it to how he's working with you and I today. So in our passage today, we are reading about what happened after the Israelites crossed the Sea of Reeds, or in our translations, the Red Sea. Remember, God split the sea. They walked through on dry land. It had after been there had been tons and tons of plagues in Egypt. Uh, after they get through the sea, the sea goes back together. All of Pharaoh's army is drowned. They're free. Their pursuer is dead. The slave driver is gone. They're free, and they're in the wilderness. Before we jump into the story, let me introduce you to an idea, a concept called liminal space. You may know about this, you may not. Liminality is defined as the threshold. It's the place between where you've been and where you're going. Like when you stand on the threshold of your house or the church building, you're no longer outside, but you're not quite inside. That's a liminal space. It could be a time between different things in your lives, right? A time between what was and what's next. Sociologists talk about liminal space as this transitional space where somebody, for a moment, they lack uh, um, social standing, social status, and they tend to be more dependent on others. And they come in, liminal spaces come in all sorts of transitional packages. That's where the nation of Israel is. Let me dive into this a little bit. Think about a wedding ceremony, for instance. Bride and groom are being set apart from one another. They're there in kind of these special clothes, and they've got these symbolic gestures that they're beginning to do with a candle or maybe vows, a ring, and a kiss. And those gathered are witnessing a whole change in their status. While they're standing there in the wedding ceremony, they're not married yet, but they're no longer actually single either. It's a liminal space. And at some point, they're turned and introduced to those who have gathered to witness this thing as a couple. Now they are married. Another way to think about this, an airport. An airport is a liminal space. Nobody has the airport as your destination. Unless you're a design aficionado and you're going to the Portland airport because you really need a picture of that carpet. 
and only the designers would understand what I'm talking about there. If you don't understand that, don't worry about it. You could search, go Portland Airport Carpet, and you'll see exactly what I mean. Pregnancy is like a nine-month liminal space. You're a mom. There's a baby on board, but you're not quite a mom. You haven't nursed, or you haven't bathed, or changed a diaper, or pushed a stroller, or disciplined the child, or taught the ABCs to them. But by the way, that's one of the things that makes miscarriage so incredibly painful. And if you've gone through that, like lots and lots of women have, lots and lots of families have, it makes it so painful because you've entered a liminal space, but you're not coming out the other side with what you thought you were coming out with. Colleges intentionally create liminal spaces, a new place to live, new routines, new friends. Graduation from college is a liminal space. I'm no longer a college student, yet what am I? I'm not completely employed yet. Immigrants or refugees are subject to long stretches of this, always feeling like an outsider, unable to put down roots, feel secure. During the lockdowns of COVID, we all lived in a liminal space. How long is this going to last? What's going on? There's these kinds of transitions. Here's something to pay attention to. None of us enjoy, or I'd say very few people, enjoy liminality. We look for belonging, we look for order, we look for predictability. Liminal spaces are generally uncomfortable and awkward, and it can feel completely disorienting. In our passage today, Israel has entered into a liminal space. It's called the wilderness. They're not yet Yahweh's people. They've been rescued, and now they're going to begin to learn what it's like to be bearers of Yahweh's name. And the wilderness brings up all sorts of questions. Are we safe? Where do we find food and water? Who the heck is in charge? How long is this journey going to go? Where are we going? Like all these things come up in liminal space. And here's the main point that I want you to get today. God has lessons to teach you in liminal space that you can't learn anywhere else. God has lessons to teach you in the wilderness that you won't get anywhere else. And it's where he builds our character. Wilderness is God's workshop for building your character. You don't want to leave it before he's ready for, to have you leave it, right? So let's jump into the story. Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 22. Grab a Bible. There's a bunch of them right there in front of you. I'm not putting these passages from Exodus on the screen. I want you to look at it like in the Bible. Do you guys know that studies show that if people open a Bible in church, they are like 90% more likely to open a Bible at home? If all they ever do is read passages on the screen, they're 90% more likely to never open a Bible anywhere else. So that's why I make you open a Bible in the church. I look at studies. <laughs> so Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. You guys with me? Find it yet? Exodus 15, 22, page 49. Here's what we read. Let me pray, and then I'll read it. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your presence here. Thank you for the way that you move in our lives and work with. Thank you for the way that you direct us into uncomfortable places so that we can represent you, so that we can bear your name, so that we can become more like what you want us to actually be like. Thank you for the way that you care enough about us to work with us and change us and grow us. We welcome you in Christ's name. Okay, starting in verse 22 of Exodus 15. Then Moses 
led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, who heals you. Then they came to Eliam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. The first lesson that they're learning here is learning to trust in God's provision. They've traveled for three days in a desert wilderness, and they found no water. Think about it for a minute. What's the thirstiest you've ever been? I bet none of us have gone three days without liquid. Like, that's really difficult to do, especially if you're hiking along the way. I always tease Brenda because she has a water bottle in every spot everywhere. It's never farther than an arm's length away from her. I'm like, you have, I think you have water insecurity. We all carry water bottles with us today. These guys, three days, desert, hiking, absolutely no water, right? That's a big deal that brings to mind an old song about being in the desert on a horse. I think anywhere along the way, he could have named the horse. That's what I think, right? It's not original with me. Sometimes we give the Israelites a bad rap. How could they be such complainers after only three days? It wasn't that long ago. There were all these crazy plagues. God protected them. It was like they were in a bubble. There was a whole Red Sea thing, right? There's the the, uh, crossing of the sea. There's a whole destruction of the Egyptian army. But here's the deal. It doesn't take very long in the desert with no water when your throat is completely parched and dry that you're only thinking about one thing. Am, am, Am I right? It doesn't take long when things get tough. When things are going well, here's the deal. We completely underestimate how disorienting liminal spaces are. When things are going well, we completely underestimate how completely disorienting transitional periods are. They really disorient us. And the other thing is we overestimate how secure we are in the moment when things are going good. We think we're amazingly secure. And we get into a transitional period, and we can't find the ground anymore. Everything's shifting under our feet, and it feels so incredibly confusing. We totally underestimate that. Listen, when COVID hit, every single one of us, every single person I talked to was disoriented for quite a bit. And so what do we do in our disorientation? One of the things we do is we start blaming other people. Why'd you bring us out here to die, God? That's what they're complaining to Moses. Three days. And now all of a sudden we're going to die. Wow. Some of us are in this kind of space right now. There's a transitional period going on in some of our lives and we feel like we're in that kind of space. I want to show you how God meets with you in that space because it's incredibly cool. Most of us, if not all of us, have friends that are in this space. And when you have a friend going through something like this, it's really easy to go, dude, just get up and live life. What are you doing? I think God wants to 
meet us with compassion, and he wants us to meet our friends with compassion when we're in these kinds of spaces the same way that he meets with the Israelites. So remember the whole reason why God brought them out of Egypt. It's not just for freedom. God is making his name known, his character known through the entire world, and he wants to do it through them. So the reason they're in this tough space is God says, I'm going to make my name known. Everybody's going to know my name. I'm going to choose you. I've chosen you way back with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I chose you, and now I'm going to rescue you so that my name is known to the whole earth. If you think about it, God didn't rescue them just for their comfort. He is going to take them to the land of milk and honey. He's going to do a bunch of stuff. But in this meantime, he's going to teach them. He's going to workshop their character. He's going to show them how to trust. The freedom that God brought to them is much less about their comfort and their ease of life. God is changing them. They're going to be a people who end up living completely differently than the whole surrounding culture. As followers of the resurrected Christ, we are meant to be a people that lives completely different from the surrounding culture. God takes us through liminal spaces. He takes us through transition to totally change how we approach life. He's going to do that with them. You are going to be, he says to them, a people who bear my name and show the entire world what I'm like. And the first step is learning to trust me in the wilderness. You see, trust is the thing that was broken way back in Genesis chapter 3. I know people tease me, Michael, how come whenever you teach the Bible, you go back to Genesis? Because it's where the whole thing began. And what happened in Genesis was that Adam and Eve, the first humans, God said, don't do this one thing. Here's everything to enjoy. Don't do this one thing. And they said, what if God's withholding the very best from us? What if we can't trust him? What if we need to go get that for ourselves? What if we said, God, thank you so much. I'll take it from here. That's the essence of sin, is that we don't trust him, that we want to do it on our own, that we want to be in charge. John, not so jokingly, during announcements, referred to Jesus as the boss. What if he is? What if that's how the whole thing is actually meant to work, right? God's not withholding something good. He's actually training me. So to bear God's name, to be Yahweh's people, they have to trust him. So really quick question, how might you be experiencing disorientation? Just think about it for a second. What's going on in your life that feels disorienting? What transition might you be in? I think God wants to meet you. And here's how he meets us. Their forgetfulness and their ingratitude in that transitional space when they're completely disoriented are met with God's gracious provision and then they're immediately invited into some obedience. This is a pattern that we're going to see over and over and over again. God's provision. He invites them. He provides for them, gives them the water, and then immediately invites them into a relationship of obedience. He says, if you listen, if you do this thing, if you pay attention, if you keep the commands, you're not going to experience what Egypt experienced. Their forgetfulness, their rebellion, their ingratitude are met with God's gracious provision, and then they're invited into a totally different way of life. 
We're going to see that again and again and again. One of the things that I love, that I've learned to love over 40-some years of following the resurrected Christ is that when I turn to him, he welcomes me with open arms. It doesn't mean that there's not real consequences for my rebellion. There is. If I've rebelled, if I've stole money, if I've done something, if I've said something hurtful, there's real consequences. I have to go back and pay that back. I have to apologize. But every single step of the way, God welcomes me with open arms and then invites me into a completely different way of life. By the way, that's what the word repentance actually means. That we turn from something, that we turn towards him, and we begin to live a different way of life. That's repentance. Metanoia is the Greek word. And it means to change, to completely change who you are, to change your mind, to change your direction. Am I making sense? To be a follower of Jesus is to allow him to graciously meet your needs, provide provision for you in your life, and then reorient life in his direction towards him. And then, by, by the way, we're meant to notice the fullness and completeness of God's provision. At the end of that, he talks about going to a place where there's 12 springs of water. There were 12 tribes. 70 palm trees. If you've been following this for a little bit, you know all those numbers actually mean something. It means the fullness of foliage. Like it was just a beautiful spot. They were well provided for on this camping trip. Okay, next part of the section. The whole Israelite community, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 16, verse 1. The whole Israelite community sent out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. So now it's been like two and a half, or no, it's been about a month and a half. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough um, for that day. In this way, I will test them to see whether or not they'll follow my instructions. So in the first test, God said, I'm going to give you some instructions. In the second one here, God's going to give them some instructions, right? And they're going to learn to trust in God's continued daily provision. So think about it. They've been out of Egypt for about six weeks. Maybe they ran out of the food that they brought with them. I don't know how it worked. As they look in the rearview mirror, they're remembering the meals in Egypt as these lavish, you know, like, I don't know, feasts with pots of meat and all the bread that they could consume. The Egyptian food was so glorious. And presently, it seems like God just wants to slowly uh, starve us to death. So back to the passage, verse 10, chapter 16. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. And then the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp. By the way, that's the exact same phrase as the locust in the plague covering all of Egypt. It's pretty, it's fascinating. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, uh, verse 14, thin flakes like frost on the ground uh, appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, what is this? 
for they did not know what it was. The Lord said to them, this is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. I love the Bible. We've talked, uh, we talk about manna, you know, being the bread. The Hebrew word manna just simply means, what is it? That's what they ate for 40 years. They ate what is it in the morning. And they had quail. They had like really nice bird uh, chicken stuff like in the evenings. And then God goes on to give them instructions. They're only to gather enough manna for a day. And those who gathered like overgathered, like when they went to check it, they had just the right amount for the day. And those who didn't work very hard that undergathered when they went to check it, they had just the right amount for the day. It's amazing. And each day, right, you'll be able to gather more than you need, but he says, don't try to save it. Because every day it's going to be there. Trust me. And if you try to save it, uh, it'll smell really bad and it'll be full of maggots the next day. So they are learning to trust God day by day, moment by moment for their daily provision. That might remind some of you of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 6. Give us today our daily bread. It's a common theme throughout the scriptures that we can actually trust God moment by moment. And those who ended up, who didn't follow God's instructions, they ended up with smelly, maggoty bread like the very next day. God's a keeper of his word. Listen, here's how it gets practical for us. In our longing for security, in our longing to leave liminal space to get out of the wilderness, in our longing to kind of get out of the uncomfortable transitional spaces, in our longing to leave God's workshop where he's building our character, we tend to cling to things that are really good things, like the manna that God's providing. We tend to cling to them and think, that's my security rather than God. If I could just get some more of these sweet little honey flakes then maybe I'll feel safe. And yet they don't keep overnight. We like rationalize it. We do all sorts of things. But that's what we do. So again, make it personal. What are, what's something that you tend to cling to for security other than God himself? And you kind of know what it is. It's not that hard. We, because we think, if I, well, if I didn't have that, then everything would be falling apart. For some of us, it could be, I don't know, savings accounts, 401ks. For some of it, it could be political ideology. For some of it, it could be like family members. It could be other kinds of things. Like if I didn't have that, everything would fall apart. I can't trust God without that thing in my life. And we tend to rationalize it. We tend to think, well, it's a really good thing. Like God gave it to me. It's a great thing. Yes, it's a good thing. But it's not the ultimate thing. It's, it's not him. We may defend it endlessly, but we, we kind of know what those things are. If you just poke around in one another's lives for just a little bit, you figure that out. We know it because your generosity around that totally dries up. Like you can't bear to part with it or give even a little bit of it away, right? For some of us, it's our time. You know it because no matter how much God does in your life, you generally end up feeling empty anyway. No matter how much of the thing you have, it's never enough. And so your generosity dries up. You know it because your tank feels empty. You know what, sometimes because your temper is short, your patience is lacking, that everyone around you is so dang annoying, you begin to realize, I'm holding on to something other than God, and I'm not receiving his grace for what's going on. But I'd say, what if it's true that you can actually trust God? What if Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 6 are true? 
where he says, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the farmer, how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow's thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans, those who don't follow God, run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. What if that's really true? What if those words are the whole different kind of life that Jesus is inviting us into? What if that's how life is meant to be oriented? I think Jesus saw this attitude in his parents, Mary and Joseph. I'm going to get to that more in just a bit. I'm getting ahead of myself. There's a bit more to learn from the manna story. Uh, Exodus 17. Let's look back. Exodus 17, verse 21. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses, like something was going wrong, right? He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be the day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it till morning. They saved it till morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you're to gather it, but on the seventh, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Verse 27, you gotta love, you got to love humankind. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Like He spotted them out there trying to gather it up. Bear in mind, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That's why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed, coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. I bet it was pretty amazing. Learning to trust God, not only in our provision, not only in our daily provision, but also in our rhythms of work and rest. Learning to trust God in our rhythms of work and west. Not only is God teaching them, he's teaching them a completely different way, a rhythm of work and rest. They'd never had a day off before. In that culture, in that time, nobody like took a day off. There was no such thing as a Sabbath in their culture. God is teaching them to bear his name, to represent him well. They need rhythms. Now listen, work is good. Work is introduced in the scriptures. Genesis 2.15 is way before the fall. Work gets introduced. God took the man, put him in the garden to work it, to take care of it. In fact, the word work translated there in Genesis is the same word throughout the Psalms that's translated as worship. That in our work, we're actually bearing God's name. We're not just like struggling through it, but in our work, we get a chance to like bear the name and the character of God as we interact with people from all different parts of life and society. It's incredibly beautiful. They've got to engage. They've got to gather the manna. They've got to store it and prepare it and bake it. They play a part in their own sustenance. And for six days, they're participating in what God's doing in work. But on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath. 
Now, I'm going to talk about this way much more when we get into the commandments that God gives his people at Sinai, but this is the first place where God does it. It's not in the Ten Commandments. It's right here with the manna. This is something that's core to who we are as the people of God. Rest. Rest. One of the very first things he teaches them to do as his Yahweh is to rest, to enter his rest. Here's the deal. That should kind of blow our minds. It's so completely countercultural to our world. Sabbath does many things for us. One of the things it does is it reminds us that we're not God. When you take a day and take your hand off the wheel, take your hand off the plow, take your hand off the keyboard, you're reminding yourself that you're not God, that God's God, that we can never do enough, that our work is always unfinished. Sabbath is a day that moves us from production to actually just being present with God and one another. It's a day set aside for that. I don't know how that works for you guys. Sometimes in our culture, we just like live for the weekend. We think of a day off. But Sabbath isn't like a day that just doesn't have responsibilities. Sabbath is a day where you remove all the obstacles to real relationship, that you celebrate with one another, that we worship with one another, that we set time aside to focus on our relationship with God. I want to encourage you to begin to arrange your week towards practicing a Sabbath. One of the things that they had to do was they had to bake everything on that sixth day to get it ready so that it didn't turn maggoty. They prepared it all so that on the seventh day, as they're resting, they're actually just hanging out with one another and the Lord, and they're enjoying the stuff that didn't turn. We need to be weaned from our tendencies to take control. Sabbath is partly where we take our hands off the world in a way that no other activity can do for us. And it's not just a day off. As I said, it's, a, it's a, more about engagement without obstacles than disengagement without responsibilities. It points us to a deeper rest that we find in Christ. In the same way, communion points us to the fact that Christ is our sustenance. It's not just a box we check. It's a whole different way to approach life. And honestly, our economy might be the most consistent God that we have in America, in most of the Western world. We think that if we could just have the right trade policies, if we can just do the right things to stimulate the stock market, then if if we can just get the interest rate in the right place, then we can come to trust the economy. And what that does is it puts it all in our hands and it makes it easier for us to manipulate it and manage it. But rest, purposefully chosen inactivity, are meant to give us an alternate way of life built on trust in God. Walter Brueggemann, I love the way he states it. He says, Sabbath is a conscientious objection to these gods. It's saying to the stock market, no. It's refusing to give in to restlessness and anxiety as a slave to Pharaoh. I'm not going to submit to the gods that demand endless work and production. I'm not going to live a life based on commodity. No. In keeping the Sabbath, we have an invitation for a restful, relational confidence in God. In this passage, there's actually this really cool contrast between serving Pharaoh and serving Yahweh. Let me show you a couple spots. There's a Hebrew phrase that Pharaoh used a couple times. Exodus 5.13, the slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And and in verse 19, chapter 5, you were not to reduce the number of bricks required of you each day. It's the exact same Hebrew phrase that God uses in Exodus 16.4, Go out and gather enough for each day. 
as somebody who's reading the Hebrew scriptures is hearing it for the first time, they're going to go, oh, Yahweh is just the opposite of Pharaoh. Pharaoh had you working each day, every single day. Pharaoh had you working every single day to build that funerally coat. Uh, a cult that everybody was worshiping him, right? To prop up his divinity. Yahweh's thing for each day is what I'm graciously providing for you, what I'm graciously giving you. You still have to cook it. You're still engaged. You're still involved. But there's a whole new rhythm and there's a whole gracious new Lord that you're serving. We need a weekly rhythm where we reorient our worship. Rather than worshiping the economy, rather than worshiping the gods of the things that we hold tight. We need a weekly rhythm that helps to reorient our economy. I mean, our, our, our worship. And worship is the way that we respond to our experience and our knowledge of God. Am I making sense? Are you guys with me? This is like giant. It doesn't seem giant to you. I can tell. I see it in your eyes. This is like really, really huge. It totally changes the way we approach life. We've been working with our staff and with our leaders here at the Vineyard for this entire year on this whole idea of what Sabbath really means and how do we practice it in our lives. And I've heard some really cool stories coming from different folks in our communities. We've begun to do that. And I've been waiting for like these passages where we can begin to talk about it all together. In the wilderness, in the liminal space, in the transition, we're learning new rhythms of work and rest. And then lastly, we're learning to trust in God's presence. Uh, Exodus 17, uh, starting in verse 1, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. Uh, They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Water problem again. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? And then why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water, and there they grumbled against Moses. Why'd you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And I will stand before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? That last line is really powerful. He names the place about quarreling because what they were asking is, Is the Lord among us or not? One of the things in the wilderness is we're learning to trust in the presence of God. That's one of the lifelong questions that people of God ask all the time. Is God here? Does God see me? Am I seen? Am I noticed? Is another way of saying, is God actually here? Like, where is he? Do you ever feel like when you're praying that your prayers are just kind of bouncing off the ceiling? Like the ceiling's too thick? You're like in a thick place, not a thin place, right? Do you ever feel that way? I think God does that on purpose to help grow our trust in him in the same way he's doing it here. The answer, of course, unequivocally is yes. If you've been around a bit, you've probably heard us pray a prayer here that we pray a lot, maybe too much, called Come Holy Spirit, although it's like the oldest recorded prayer 
of Christendom. I don't think you can actually pray it too much. Where we're saying, God, we want to feel your presence. We want to experience your presence in our lives. When we pray, come Holy Spirit, we're saying, God, would you personally draw close to us? The renowned uh, Bible scholar Gordon Fee wrote, for the Apostle Paul, looking at the New Testament, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was not merely an impersonal influence or force or power. The Holy Spirit is none other than the fulfillment of the promise that God would be present with his people. In all of Paul's writings throughout the New Testament, you see that when Paul's writing about the Holy Spirit, he's talking about the personal presence of God being with us. That was the cry of the Israelites, like, is God here? One of the reasons that we have ministry time up here in front, one of the reasons that we take time to purposefully lay hands and pray for one another is we regularly need an infilling of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the presence of God, so that we can live in this restful way as a totally different kind of life, people, in our community. We can't go without that. I honestly, I don't trust leaders who never get prayer. Leaders who never get prayer are actually really dangerous humans because we tend to be doing it on our own. It's so incredibly important that we make time in all of our small groups and all of our times together. We want to pray for one another. It's a gigantic thing for us. It's like the, one of the biggest components of kind of what it means to be a vineyard church. And we're asking when we pray that we would experience his personal presence, the way that Jesus told us it was available. John 14 He says, all this I've spoken to you while I'm still here, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said. He makes the same promise in chapter 15 and a couple times in chapter 16. Let me me tie this into Advent for a second. I think Mary and Joseph like totally got all of this, by the way. They totally get it. Mary is invited into a liminal space when Gabriel shows up and says, yeah, I know you're not quite married yet, and I know you've never had sexual relationships, but you're going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and you're going to give birth to the Messiah. She asks a couple clarifying questions like, yeah, how can that actually happen? Right? And then as Gabriel speaks to her, Gabriel says, she says this, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled. That is such a great answer when you're in a transitional space, when you're in a liminal space, when you're invited into something that's gonna be totally disorienting and uncomfortable, Mary is our teacher. She's so, she's brilliant. Jesus' mom, I think he saw it in her. Joseph, similarly, he's like, his head's spinning, he's in a liminal space, he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, what the heck's going on? And angel appears to him in a dream. So he just has like a, I don't know, a nightmare. He's got a dream. When he woke up and the angel said, here's what you're supposed to do, here's what's coming, the way he responds, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him, took Mary home as his wife. Like Mary and Joseph just pivot. They pivot in such a cool way as God begins to speak to them. Listen, I know that many of us are in a disoriented space right now. I think God wants to speak to us and he actually wants us to pivot. He wants us to pay attention to him. In fact, even as I'm saying that, some of us are feeling like, oh, that really is something going on in my life. 
And then God provides, as they pivot, he provides exactly what they need. Luke chapter two, when they were there in Bethlehem, time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to a firstborn son and wrapped him uh, in cloths and placed him in the manger because there's no room at the guest inn. I love this. The provision that God had for this family wasn't what they would hoped it would be. They're in a stable and yet God meets them right there in that. Sometimes we think our provision needs to be exactly what we want. But sometimes we look at the provision, the manna, and we go, what is this? Well, I don't know. It's like coriander seed and wafer honey. Okay, I guess we make bread with that for 40 years. The same thing. 40 years. That's a whole other thing we're going to get to. The same thing. 40 years. Like We can't handle eating the same thing for two days. Like Thanksgiving leftovers come up, you know, and it's like three days in, we're like, I need something else. I was watching, a, do you guys ever watch a Jacques Pepin, the, uh, the French chef that you can see like all over the place? Amazing. He had a special thing. It was like the best thing to eat the day after Thanksgiving, and it was takeout Chinese food. I thought, that's amazing. He's eating it out of this little cup. He goes, the best thing to eat the day after Thanksgiving? Not leftovers, Chinese food. And he's like munching away on it, this old, like, I don't know, 140-year-old guy. It's amazingly cool. There's a whole other thing. Okay, here's the deal. I want to pray for us. I think God actually wants to do some stuff for those of us that feel like we're in a really confusing, liminal, transitional um, space. And things feel like just a little disorienting to you. And many of us are in that. We might not identify it as such yet, but I think God wants to show us how we're, some of us are in those spaces, how disorienting it happens to be, and then how he wants to meet with us graciously, provide for us, provide his presence, provide sustenance moment by moment. But he also wants to call us to obedience. And so for every one of us, I think there's areas in our life where God wants to, right now, kind of call us to some things of obedience. So I'm going to have you guys stand up. Let's go ahead and do that. I'm going to pray my normal prayer, come Holy Spirit. And then I'll probably be quiet for a couple minutes because I just want to listen to the Lord. If you're at home, just get in a comfortable spot near wherever you're sitting. Put your feet down on the floor. Just get comfortable for a moment. And like, let's listen to the Holy Spirit and let's see where God wants to meet us in our confusion and where he wants to invite us into obedience. So Holy Spirit, we invite your presence here right now. God, would you come and speak to us? We don't want to just hear the Bible. We don't want to just hear teaching. We want to actually put it into some practice. And so God, would you come right now? For those of us that feel um, like the equilibrium is kind of gone somehow. God, would you graciously bring your presence? Would you meet with us? For those that feel like they've been wandering around like in a desert for three days without water, six weeks run out of food, provision is gone. Holy Spirit, would you come and meet with us right now?
For those that feel like God's presence is just far away, Holy Spirit, would you meet with us right now? You may be here today and you've actually never made a commitment towards God, towards Christ. Maybe somebody drug you here, you just got lost and found your way in. <laughs> or maybe you've been like exploring around the edges of Christianity for a while. Holy Spirit, would you come and meet with us right now? For those of us that feel we have some areas in our life where we know we're disobedient. Holy Spirit, would you come and meet with us right now? For those of us that have been clinging to something that's really good, it's a gift from God. Family members, talents, abilities, resources that God's given to you, and those have become security, and you recognize it in the in the lack of generosity, you recognize it in the, when it comes to that thing, you can't take your, your, your clenched fist off of it. Holy Spirit, would you come and meet with us right now? There's a, a few of us, I think, that might be feeling actually pretty despondent. Like, why even go on? This is so much work. It's so hard. I just want to lay down and die. Holy Spirit, would you come and meet with us right now? We welcome you. I don't know if you guys sense this in the room. There's a few people probably feeling a little uncomfortable that this is going on longer. But the presence of God is thick in this room right now. Lord, we welcome you right now. God is available to you right now. If you'll turn towards him. Wherever you're at on the journey, turn towards him. And thankfully, he's placed us in community, so it's not just turn towards him alone. But I want you to begin to pray for one another now. And so prayer ministry team, why don't you come on up here? And then if you want prayer... Just walk up here. And if you're afraid of people thinking like you have needs, you don't want them to see it, they won't know if you're on the prayer ministry team or not. Like just right now, just walk up here. And find somebody who's on the prayer ministry team and begin to get some prayer. If you are experiencing disorientation, if you're experiencing that despondency, if you feel like this is too much to handle, would you come and get some prayer? We want to be your family, your community. We want to be the people of God alongside you, helping you walk through this. And there's something super powerful 
when other people just lay hands on us and begin to pray. It's really powerful. There's something really good about that. We did that as a staff this week where we just heard one another's stories and then we prayed for each other for quite a bit. It was so refreshing, so good. Come and get that. And that thing in that voice in your head saying, I don't need it, I can just do it on my own, that's actually not God. That's the other dude. I'd really encourage you to stop listening to that voice. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Come and receive some prayer from one another. These guys are going to lead us in some worship for a little bit. You can hang out in here as long as you want. These are some things that God really wants to do. And if you're at the very beginning of this journey, if you're just barely stepping, dipping your toes into the water of what it means to follow Christ, man, actually dip your foot in the water. Come get some prayer and say, I'm just dipping my toes in the water. I want to learn what this is like. Would you pray for me? We would love to spend that time with you. So Holy Spirit, would you give us the courage to respond in these moments? In Christ's name. Other than that, God bless you guys. Thanks for coming to the vineyard during this Advent season. Have a great rest of your day.